This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, Bella Catering, one of Sydney's best catering companies, pivoted to home delivery during the time of COVID, just like many people, they've had to do that. And look, we love them and we think that they do absolutely incredible food, especially at their catered events. They are delectable, but you can get that at home. Why would you even bother cooking for a bunch of people at your house and the reducing number at this stage as we're on the precipice of a potential second wave? Don't bother cooking. Just order it with Bella Catering. If you're in the greater Sydney area, they'll deliver it to your house and then done. The stress of eating is sorted. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Maria. We love Bella Catering. Thank you for sponsoring all the President's Minutes throughout this entire thing. Guys, thank you for listening to all the President's Minutes and all of the One Heat Minute production shows. We have a banger of a week for you this week. Huge guests, huge minutes. Let's get to it. On August 1st, 1972, I picked up Woodward and Bernstein's third article on Watergate. It said that one of the Watergate burglars had gotten money from the Nixon campaign. What the reporters would soon discover was that Nixon's re-election committee was engaging in a campaign of espionage and sabotage against the Democrats. Woodward and Bernstein were beginning to pull back the curtains on a strange and shadowy world. And I wanted to know how they were doing it. I got really intrigued with the idea of making a film about Woodward and Bernstein because one was a Jew, the other was a wasp, one was a radical liberal, and the other was a Republican. And what interested me was, beyond that, was really the hard work that they did together to get at this story. So I gave Woodward a call. And he was pretty chilly on the phone. I said, hi, this is Bob Redford calling. He said, yeah. and. I said, I, I wanted to know if I could meet you and your partner because I have this idea I want to share with you. Woodward came to me and said that Redford had called and I put together who Redford was and was interested in talking to us or whatever. I, I, I said, we're busy. We got to do this story. For Woodward and Bernstein, it wasn't only that the break-in seemed fishy. There was something just as odd about the White House response. Presidential Press Secretary Ron Ziegler called it a third-rate burglary attempt. Ron Ziegler calling it a third-rate burglary, that was the tip-off to us. There seemed to be nothing third-rate about it except they got caught. They had raised the stakes so high with this third-rate burglary nonsense, and it was apparent that something here was really rotten. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today are two journalists, a Woodstein of their own, but instead of usurping the political effery, I'm, and why I'm uh, why I'm censoring, self-censoring right now is because some of their listeners may have leapt over and jumped onto this podcast, the political effery of one Richard Nixon. They are instead unpacking what I believe is one of the greatest Australian pieces of art that has been committed uh, to celluloid screen digital whatever the hell our screen culture is now that's what they're doing they're they're unpacking it and they're unpacking it from 
with the eyes and the scrutiny of that sort of journalistic rigors of their past, but also from their firsthand experiences as mums, uh, I was very lucky enough to be a part of their insanely great and popular Bluey podcast. Got to be done. They are Kate McMahon and Mary Bolling. Mary, Kate, Kate, Mary, welcome to All the President's Minutes. Blake, thank you. What an introduction. I've, I had to say, yes, being Woodstein, but I'm all about that now. We need to make that mashup work. I, I, I just, I, this is this is one thing that, uh, and and I didn't tell you on your show last week because it kind of didn't come up, but I'll tell you now for folks listening is there's something about uh, when you whenever you listen to a new take on a show, there's just something like that just resonates and. So when I first listened to your episodes of Bluey, uh, my wife knew who I was, knew I was listening, hadn't listened to an episode of your show yet. And she said, oh, what's it like? And I said, it's insanely well researched. And this is before I, I knew a second, I, like I, I even knew you guys, I don't, I wasn't familiar with you. Um, so I, but I could hear like both of you taking like rigorous notes, going through unpacking, like this is this sound cue, this is this sound drop, this is this thing. And I'm like, they're good. They're pretty good. Like they, they kind of, they, they, they kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's just something that, you know, I was game respect game. Is that what they say? You know, like game respect game. I was like, yeah, they like, they know their shit. They're not just, they're not floundering. They know the players, they know the detail, they're diving into it. And as someone who has spent now, like, I don't know, three, it's, I think it's upwards of 300 episodes on our feed. Um, and probably, you know, I think about, I want to say probably almost 300 of those are me. Um, uh, and uh, uh, hours of scrutinizing and unpacking art. I was just like, game, respect, game. And so, uh, you know, you guys invited me on to do your show, which I was really, I actually begged to crowbar myself onto the show. But but I thought, you know, I thought it would be really interesting to talk to you guys and get you guys to take off your mum hats um, and, and put back on those journo hats and, uh, and join me for a minute because particularly this scene, this is the scene, this scene of the movie basically of all the president's men. So I thought, you know, who better than two journos and two lady journos, especially to, um, in a scene, in a scene about sort of coaxing out information out of a source who can blow a story wide open. <sighs> yeah. We don't even start with that, Mary. <laughs> well, look, you know, it's, I, I guess um, coaxing coaxing stories out has definitely been our past and and even our present. I reckon because you know it's it's a skill that stands you in good stead for life um, yes. for toddlers, as you'd know, Blake. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes keep sometimes talking. Keep, exactly what, what happens at do? daycare doesn't doesn't flood out. Uh, <laughs> there's there's other interests at play. There might be a standover man or two involved. Um, sometimes your child is the standover man. So yeah, look there, I was definitely seeing a lot of uh, relatable uh, stuff in this scene, even though it's a long time since I've tried to, you know, wedge a foot in the door and invite myself in for coffee. <laughs> See, it probably actually hasn't been that distant for me. So, um, yeah, I've, uh, I've worked for the Victorian government now and uh, do a lot of campaigns and uh, do a lot of crisis comms as well. So um, definitely been in Carl's shoes many a time where you are either ringing someone up or physically going, knocking on a door and saying, 
all right, you need to tell me what's going on. And then in the, you know, you're just trying to edge in enough to get to that point where they feel comfortable in just telling you everything. Um, a lot easier said than done. Uh, it definitely is a strong negotiating skill, um, but and, so valuable, and, and, you know, to be as, that person that can get it out. And I was going to say, as mums, you know the power of silence. Uh, <laughs> or a look, uh, you know, uh, a well-placed flare can uh, just cut through. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, uh, Jane Alexander, who plays the bookkeeper, has that incredible performance is just like every she's a storm of emotions and feelings and anxieties and all those things that are happening but the calculating leaving spaces for her to fill and sort of offering these softball you know confirmation i already know xyz but if you could just clarify xyz you know those things it, it is a real skill and um and you know it's it's journalistic bread and butter, but it's also making sure that you, with this delicate individual, because it's just people, you know, it's just people in that the, at the end of this thing, the entanglement and all that nonsense, and it happens whether it's in corporate, weird corporate malfeasance or whether it's in politics, it's like at the end of the day, there is someone there who is a person who's got morals and ethics, who is doing stuff and then has to contend with is what I'm actually doing right. And so what's great yeah is that journalistic impulse to kind of like, you know that something is wrong and something is bad and this is an opportunity to help sort of, you know, spiritually get it out, but also it's the right. <laughs> but it's the sort right. of like an exorcism really, isn't it? Yeah. So the um, more, the more going I'm, in and getting out that pus from that, that wound. Yeah, the, the, the more, more I'm wrestling with this scene and talking about it, I just feel like that. It's like it is a weight. It is a weight to 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 be to be passing through so you guys in your past lives both journos obviously mm -hmm. you you uh, e each of you and we can get to absolutely both of you but i might just start with you mary did you have have you ever had a relationship as in with with all the president's men is it something that has been around in your life is it something that inspired you because i think all journos have their journalism films and i think different eras of journos have their journalism films um but this is definitely one that's usually seminal for folk had you seen it had you experienced it before uh, look, Blake, I don't even know how I'm coming on this uh, podcast and admitting this, but yeah, I saw it last night. Wow. Same, but, <laughs> but I had it's, read it's the book it's, at it's, uni and it was amazing how, um, how the book is just so, so you're in every moment and in every shadow and in every kind of quickening heartbeat as you read it but even though it was a long time ago like I kind of you know saw the you know the first scene in the underground car park I'm like oh it doesn't look like that like it's different in my head so <laughs> so that's how sort of vivid the book still was for me and absolutely Bradley as well like yeah if there's one thing I sort of remembered vividly from the book um yeah it it's the imposing editor and we've had a few of them loom <laughs> over us, like <laughs> um, both of us. But um, yeah, so that kind of was my biggest memories from the book. Um, and yeah, the having now watched the film, it, it stacks up, but yes. It's, it, it's okay. The confession is fine. Actually, in a, only a couple of episodes ago, you know, we, we have people that come in and, and slide in and this is, 
you know, this is a new experience. But it's interesting that you say that the book was prescribed, sort of like prescribed reading at the time, because it feels like oh, some, some folk are like they've read the book and or read all the books sometimes because there's a, a stack of them that all fall yeah. the final days too afterwards, which sort of really detail um, those final days that Nixon had in office. So there's there's a lot of those there. But uh, all right, what a, what about you, Kate? Because you confess there over the top in a chorus. <laughs> Uh, I just couldn't leave Mary hanging out there on her own, really. Um, no, I I actually, um, yeah, hadn't seen the film either. But I have a very vague memory, and Mary, I still haven't worked out if it's real or not, that we actually saw Bob Woodward speak when we were at uni um, at a Melbourne Press Club event. And I'm fairly confident at that time it wasn't known who Deep Throat was. Uh, and, of course, yeah. someone in the audience had asked him and he did um, sort of tell that story about how it would either be the person dying or giving permission before he would reveal it. And it sort of sparked a really in-depth and interesting conversation on privacy. So I don't think I'm imagining this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty detailed imagination. It's a pretty detailed imagination. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm hoping that that's right. Um, but... <laughs> yeah, I have to confess, I've always found Australian politics really, really, really interesting. And American politics has sort of gone over my head a little bit. Um, yeah, I was mainly focused on um, Britain and Australia. Um, but watching it last night, actually, uh, I've, I've been missing out because it's such a great <laughs> film. And I really loved um, how it sort of, captured an era of the newsroom that no longer exists. Yeah. Um, but one that I remember from the very, very, very earliest days of my uh, foray into journalism. So uh, in the 90s, I did work experience at The Age newspaper in Melbourne. And I sat, I sat in a meeting um, like we see the editorial news meetings where it's basically a bunch of older white guys <laughs> sitting in a circle, a <laughs> couple of feet on the desk. And um, this was at a point where it was the state election. Um, East Timor was um, in total crisis. Um, Michael Gawenda was the editor of The Age. And I remember him walking him in and um, Lindsay Murdoch had this story um, about a baby being born in the compound of East Timor and the foreign editor mentioned it and he was just like, the age is baby, the age is baby. And then like <laughs> everyone in the newsroom just started chanting the age is baby and um, it was like those meetings. And then being a chief of staff um, and a senior reporter and um, a, a section editor at different times, you know, you go in and, um, you, I've been in those meetings where you, it's, it's so um, gung-ho. You've really got to fight for your corner and to get that space. And I loved the, um, the pace of the newsroom as well. And um, since we were coming on your podcast today, I have spent the day binge reading all about um, all the presidents. And the level of detail that they've gone to, I have to say, is just extraordinary. You know, the fact that they were able to, replicate the post newsroom but not just physically but the manner like in which a newsroom is conducted the chatter and the the fluorescent lighting um yeah it, oh, it's the just, death stares at 20 paces like yeah. that is just <laughs> instant flashback to yeah um we both separately worked at the herald sun at different times yeah. and yeah that was uh Definitely, you know, over the partitions in the open plan office uh, was ringing all sorts of bells. And, uh, 
yeah, I think, you, you know, our you, days might have had a bit less you, of the thump, thump, thump <laughs> the typewriter, but otherwise, you can still bash the keyboard pretty hard, though. Oh, you know, true, you don't yeah. have to ding at every sentence. Um, yeah, but it, it gets pretty extreme. And I've been that person with the red pen before, like, ripping through journalist copy going, no, 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 no. So, um, That's my dream. Yeah. That's my dream. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you um, you, you do need to have a certain fortitude for getting the death stairs. Um, but apart from that, you you would probably be well placed, Blake, because your attention to detail is amazing. So, <laughs> well, um, one one bit that you talked about, obviously they they recreated the the post newsroom in like a scary fashion, so much so that the real, the real Bradley and the real Woodward and Bernstein like walk in and like had minor sort of panic freak out moments that, that that's the space, but particularly the scene we're talking about. So the lady, the bookkeeper, um, uh, for folks only referred to in the credits and only, you know, in the script as bookkeeper, but it is actually a lady mm-hmm. by the name of, uh, Judy Hoback Miller. And this is in Judy Hoback Miller's house. Yeah. This is actually, yeah, which I couldn't believe this scene that is, they rented her house that, and they, and the actress, and had talked to her extensively. So, yeah, it's quite strange. I really want that couch, by the way. The couch is amazing. A, the couch is great. B, just everything. The couch is beautiful. Everything about it. I think her outdoor (laughs) furniture coming up in another scene is something I've coveted much um, in many revisited (laughs) viewings of this movie. But that's what, that is what has shocked me is that you, uh, you know, George Jenkins is the production designer on the film and won an Academy Award for it and, Alan J. Pakula in a really great and rare interview to find him talking about it, you know, talks about when he found George Jenkins, he said there's a kinship and he goes, he was so obsessed with making everything perfect. And so for me, it's always been like, yes, what's wonderful about it, shooting it in such close proximity to the events, you can go to the real Q hotel in Washington. You can go to the real car parks where, you know, where Woodward says that he met deep throat, you can go to the real places and shoot that. And it just never occurred to me with this scene. And maybe that's like a, a weird confession. Like, oh, well, they, they probably found a house that was like it or a similar yeah. architecture mm-hmm. or something. But just the fact that you go to, to the level of like, we want to rent the house, we want to talk to her, we want to be in the same space and then confine yourself to that space because then it changes the way you can shoot the scene, light the scene, block mm-hmm. the scene, you know, play around um, a great, uh, film critic Jason Bailey has come on the show. He talks about Gordon Willis, who's the cinematographer. He says, you know, he's one of the best cinematographers ever. And he's had to light this crummy newsroom, basically halogen lights, you know, it's just the worst place to, to do really moody lighting. And then whenever yeah. he gets a chance to go into someone's smaller space, he just, you know, now he's got to light the whole room with a lamp, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> and so it's really one of those interesting things, but um, it's, I think that level of you, if you guys, you know, and it's so, it gives me such like, like warm and fuzzies. If, if real journalists can look at that open plan office and I've worked in corporate areas with like that open plan, it gives me nightmares, like thinking about <laughs> like the, the it gives me nightmares. Cause I don't think at some point all the open plan in corporate world were just like, they looked at newsrooms and they're like, well, these people all collaborate all day working together. So, and they're in different divisions, but you know, this is how we keep it all open and we have, you know, the rare offices or whatever. But if you guys can hear those keyboards being typed and 
smashed and you know even in corporate environments i remember looking at old keyboards where people had typed so hard on the keys that they were gone like on all the norm like on all the e's and the s's and the t's and the, the r's letters rub off. the letters rub <laughs> off so they just like blank things because they've typed them so hard so long um i feel like if that's if that's really you know resonating with you guys that's great and also um new eyes and fresh eyes on this is exactly one of the thrills that i have as the host of this show so let's let's do it Let's dive into the 82nd minute of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's masterpiece from 1976, All the President's Men. Kate and Mary and I are going to watch it along together now. You guys are going to listen along at home, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Either way. Did it go that high up? L. Hmm. I don't want to say any more, okay? I'm sorry. You said L. I get confused. Can we just go back for a second? In one six-day period, over $6 million came in. You wouldn't believe what was going on inside that woman. I mean, the stuff was just ready to pour out of her, and I'm pouring down the cups of coffee trying to get it out of her before she throws me out of the house. Okay, give me your notes so I can These get are the notes. These are the notes? Yeah, I got stuff on napkins, matchbooks. I'm writing in the bathroom while she's getting the coffee. I'm a walking litter basket You're crazy. Here. How am I going to... Well, you'd be crazy, too, if you were operating on 20 cups of coffee. Well, uh, could you give me something I can get down? I got it. I got it all. Okay, right. Mitchell was in control. Wait a minute. There were men working under Mitchell. How many? I don't know how many, but the men working under Mitchell were the ones that received the money from the slush fund. Okay, do we know how much money we're talking about? Yeah, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the, the- There it is. Amazing. Such a great music. I assume I, that's the William Goldman script that you got, like, that you love and... Oscar winning is, it goes from this, like, was there an M and L and you see the clutching at straws, you see her closed up, she's behind the lamp, she's, you know, it's just uh, a lovely little cinematic move of, like, the lights are off, I'm behind the lamp, you're not getting anything else out of me, it's over, the conversation's over, and then it gets into this (sighs) caffeine-charged, where's the stuff? (laughs) Notes, notes. (laughs) Straight straight back to Carl Bernstein's manic energy we've come to know and love in the movie and obviously get to continue to love for the remaining 50-odd minutes of it. Um, But a really really wonderful scene. Such a good one. It's amazing. I think it's such a perfect scene for us as well because that manic energy – flows over very much into <laughs> both uh, Bluey and our lives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I think especially a, a parent can relate to that um, mainlining coffee to <laughs> get through. And then at the end of whatever mission you were on as a parent, then, yeah, <laughs> you've just got that, like, can insane never. energy and you can't even explain what has happened. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, the it's just yeah. it's and also so relatable, pull, and you're just pulling things out of pockets that you didn't know you had. Like, what have I got yeah. here today? Here's a here's a dummy. Here's what? No, one sock. Here's one sock. Did I bring out a president yesterday? Didn't I? Who? <laughs> no, like yeah, it's just it's impossible. Um, yeah, it's you're right about the the sound and the the. The, um, the typewriter coming back in as well. When you came on our podcast, like I loved the uh, quote you shared um, about sound from um, Danny Boyle, the director yeah. of Sunshine, and that you know, 70, 80% of any, any film is sound. I feel like this film, 70 or 80% is just typewriter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
puts the and it just pumps the energy up to yeah eleven. It's amazing. Um, it's a really nice punctuation mark too because we've gone from this very quiet, almost awkward silences um, with uh, the bookkeeper, and then um, you know that scene to me is all about the use of light. You know, we've got um, this incredible sort of bit where she sort of steps into the light to sit down in the chair initially and then the minute that we're analysing, um, she really does withdraw back into that darkness and we're almost at an elevated view. You can really sense the, the paranoia. It's like they're being watched by someone else and at that stage, her head disappears behind the silhouette of a, a lampshade and the brightest things in the room are a lamp in the corner and the notepad in Carl's hand. And um, I really just loved that use of light. I mean, um, the guy that did the cinematography on this, sorry, like we're still, you know, amateur hours. <laughs> no, no. We're not on first name basis yet. His name is Gordon Willis. And oh, Willis, he, he, Gordon Willis, he is... Um, it's a W. It's a W. No, that's okay. No, no, no that, 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 that's that's okay. I don't. I, I don't expect you guys and people other than like raging cinephiles such as myself <laughs> might not immediately know who Gordon Willis is. But if you know about cinematographers, you know, and the role of a cinematographer largely for just if you're an, if you're a new complete new person out there, the role of a cinematography is largely just light, like absolutely mm-hmm. what Kay's talking about. It's just light and shadow and how the scene is lit and the tone of a scene and the mood of a scene and how that's going to be constructed and how it's going to be achieved. And some directors are more or less involved with their cinematographers. So some cinematographers are super active. They will actually get in. They'll frame the shots. The director will have a general gist and then let them off the leash. You get someone different like a Michael Mann, and, uh, you know, with Heat or like a Quentin Tarantino who literally compose every single shot themselves and then and then their cinematographer works with the constraints or the confines of how they wanted every scene to unfold. So in this scene, you've got an incredible actor's director, Alan J. Pakula, who's so keen and getting in the confines of the space and he will know how he wants it shot and the eye lines and the scene and get it done. But Gordon Willis is a guy who has been behind the lighting of some of the most iconic films of all time. God, uh, Godfather Godfather, series. Godfather Part yeah. 1 and 2. He's worked with Pakula on Parallax View, Clute. Almost every film that he touches ended up being, I think I think, I think, think three of his films, uh, one best picture that he uh, was, <laughs> was, the man, was, the man, was the man behind. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, yeah, an absolutely incredible um uh, incredible man and, 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 and incredible vision in this. And you're so, there's one other little touch, but I don't want to understate how awesome it is. It's just like that room scene for all of us and just pure, like, you know, cinematic language. What do we know? What do we know in our lives that has that view of a room, especially if you're a parent who maybe has like a kitty cam in their room or something like that. It is, you feel like you just jump into the point of surveillance. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's like she's all in the light. She retreats into the darkness. As you said, Kate, so beautifully, what's lit up is the paper in his hand or it kind of maybe looks like a napkin now, (laughs) a piece of (laughs) a scrapbook, whatever he's got. But it's, there is a very deliberate and without being too on the nose shift of like, there is a reason why she wants to retreat is because she literally Mm. feels like the outside world is surveilling what's happening. And that's the worst possible thing for them and for her is that in that moment that she is actually being watched but she is she can feel it but how much she's said or hasn't said is is really gonna you know time's gonna tell for us in the movie i think that's just such a it's such a basic little pivot it's a basic little thing but it's so powerhouse and powerful for a viewer yeah. just like it because you, you're innately thinking about it without even thinking about it really and it also places the viewer in this position of feeling a bit uncomfortable yeah. because you really do feel like you're almost intruding on a conversation yeah. and then all of a sudden um, it really just helps punctuate that case change between then being you're back in that circle with Carl and Bob at the typewriter and hearing everything, you know, every single do, do, do on the on the typewriter, you know, you're back in that circle as opposed to being that sort of outside observer that's sort of feeling a bit uncomfortable, like they shouldn't almost be there. So, yeah, I just thought it was a very clever technique to really get the viewer, I guess, in that sort of feeling, um, yeah, that, that sense of danger almost or that sense of intrusion. Um, because as a journalist and Mary, I know how many death knocks and things you've done in your time as well. But, um, you know, you you are putting yourself in a position where you are asking people to give you personal information for really not much benefit and in lots of cases to their detriment. So um, I think it's such a... It's such an interesting, you know, back and forward that 30 seconds of this, um, the start where Carl is just trying to gently tease, you know, is the letter. As a journalist, you're always trying to get people over the line so that they give you enough information that they feel that they need to correct you and tell you what's actually. (laughs) It's almost like um, a cascade effect. You know, if you can get a little bit and then you can go back to them and say, well, actually, what about this? And he uses some really clever techniques, which I know I've used a lot of, like, I'm sorry, I'm just a bit confused. Yeah. <laughs> and then they have to explain Generally, it to Permanently you confused. Permanently confused. Yeah, I did a lot of time in the UK as a celebrity reporter and I genuinely didn't know who most people were. Um, but, yeah, I'm quite often um, saying things like, oh, I'm really sorry, can you just explain that to me? And then people will give you extra and so much of journalism as well is about trust and building that rapport with people if they feel like you're genuinely interested in listening and um care they're much more likely to give you the information that you need so um yeah uh and particularly celebrities you've got to be very careful (laughs) about how you sort of um you know, you get your first snippets of the very basic stuff to help you and then you start throwing in the curly questions and when they start getting a bit antsy, then you draw back again and it's, it's just this constant cat and mouse game. I, um, I, Mary, can you relate? Because, I mean, you did radio for a long time. It's a very different medium, I guess, to well, newspapers. yeah, there's, uh, there's at, at the end of the day, you need someone to talk on radio, so it's the flip side happens on radio where someone will tell you up, ring you up and tell you everything. 
that they could possibly want to get off their chair. Like, okay, okay, well, uh, like, are you ready to go to air? Like, oh, no, 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 I'm not talking on the radio. And you're just like, oh. <laughs> and, and, yeah, that is the radio moment of um, the bookkeeper sort of pulling back into the dark. It's just like, oh, what was the point of that? But, um, but no, you can persist and still get the story out, I suppose. It's funny because, um, you know, and certainly when we were at uni, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of focus on how you have to present as empathetic and sound sympathetic, and and it was very much about the the performance you put on, yes. which I think um, which I think Bernstein really captures here because. Yes, he's so concerned about, you know, are they threatening you? Like trying to really, you know, give that I'm on your side. But as soon as he's back with Woodward, <laughs> it's like, oh, she was so paranoid. And, and I kind of like, I really you know, love this kind of affable rogue um, character or real person, I suppose. I don't know how much of it's character really, but um but yeah, a, a little bit of my heart broke then where I'm like, well, you could have, you could have continued, you could actually be sympathetic. You could actually be empathetic rather than just kind of treat your source as <laughs> something to just be used along the way and then written off as paranoid. Okay. Confession time, uh, particularly when I was um, chief of staff, there'd be so many times where I was just like, we just need the information. And you'd ring up someone, you'd be like, hi, and you'd just, you'd pull out all the charm. And as soon as they give you what you want, it's like, thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy. I won't hold you up any longer. <laughs> get out. And it's like, get the butt quote. And then rush it out and suck it in. Um, you know, and, oh, and, hey, more and, my heart is breaking. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm a very, I would like to think of myself as an exceptionally empathetic person who's very cool ability and all the rest. But uh, yeah, in the newsroom, that I guess yeah, that's why I quite like this scene, and I'm really glad that this is the one you chose to come in on, Blake, because uh, it's very relatable. <laughs> it was a big part of my life, but, and and it's weird being outside of journalism now because you look back and you go, actually, that's really terrible behaviour, but. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a a deadline just brings out the killer, doesn't it? It's, <laughs> it really it, does. not actual killer. The the killer instinct of like this is what I need. But no, you make a really great point of there is a craft because in this moment, especially, um, and what's so exciting in both of these scenes is, uh, and I've talked about it a, a little bit, touched on a little bit, and we'll touch on it in a couple of upcoming episodes is. I love that people relentlessly steal good techniques from one another in the most positive sense that you can have. And I think journalism is a great example of that. And you can do it, you know, pe sales people do it together, sporting teams, you know, there's a good technique. You watch different sports people go, oh, you know, this kind of kick, this kind of pass, this kind of thing. It just like it, you know, it's so good and so dominant and so interesting and new that people then add it to their arsenal and it changes the game. And I love this because the classic Carl Bernstein who's blustering and jumping into Dardis's office in South Florida at the beginning of this and trying to charm the uncharmable receptionist secretary uh, down there is he, he's charming enough to get his foot in the door, but that guy cannot stay in that house to conduct that interview for hours. That guy in his natural inclination, his natural instinct, his natural environment, He's like, he would be like a lion trying to swim in the ocean. Like you just can't do it. So for him right now, it's so great to watch him go. I've got to be more like Woodward and just do these gentle 
affable, confused. I'm just new. Like I'm just confused yeah. sort of ways to do it. And then what's so great is watching these guys bounce that collaboration off of one another to get the information that they need. Um, and I don't think their integrity is ever in question, but it's like they know how difficult and the burden it must be for these people to talk. So once they even have them, like you said, just one thing, there's a cascade. I love what you said, a cascade. It's like if you just – if you get that tipping point, it's an avalanche coming. So, yeah, um, it really is. I, and I love that. And in this scene, the great uh, dichotomy of the last moments of that sort of surveillance footage versus going into Woodward's apartment is – everything's about distance. Everything's about how far they are. Couldn't be farther away from each other. There's lack of intimacy. He's leaning in, she's leaning away. And then it's just a flurry, like two people hanging around each other. Woodward's clunky, like apartment is a just like, looks like a bomb hit it. It just looks like a. And it looks like every <laughs> single old school journalist I've ever seen. Like just, just piles of magazines and books. Because for, I mean, this is back pre-digital, right? Yeah. So we were, unless you had it in a book, you didn't have it. You didn't have it. But, yeah, but then so, we see Bernstein's apartment later, and it's pristine. And I'm so glad we get to see their apartment because it's kind of the flip of what you would expect from both of them. Um, well, would you then, would you like a little tidbit? This is a tidbit. I don't know how many times I've mentioned it on the show, but whoever said it, and I can't for the life of me remember right now as we're recording, who actually gave me this tidbit, which is that was a touch that Woodward at the time despite being played by Robert Redford, um, who is one of the most beautiful. Possibly the best looking man man ever, yeah. One of the best looking men who's ever walked the face of the earth. Um, uh, (laughs) It was a touch that sort of said without saying anything, just in the production design, that Bernstein had more ladies over because his apartment (laughs) is beautiful. His apartment is clean and pristine and has a record player and looks well lit and nice like he has more guests and Paul Woodward <laughs> is the guy that's getting the call on the Saturday morning yeah. or whatever and his apartment looks like hell and he's been staying up late and all those sorts of things so I can't for the life of me remember who said that on this show and I'm, I'm kicking myself and I'm sure if they're listening they're kicking me and I'm sorry and I love you and I know <laughs> that it's in the repository of every minute we've done of this thing so far but uh, yeah that was a, just a great touch because Bernstein actually was an avid cyclist, actually was a bit of a ladies' man, actually was uh, with Nora Ephron, the great Nora Ephron, uh, for a time. Mm-hmm. And they even they even had done a draft of this script in the lore of this show. But, yeah, it's just one of those things where, um, um, yeah, that, that t- slight m- minor touch gives you a hint that he has more visitors in his apartment. Than <laughs> <all of it. laughs> um, they have a, a great level of detail again, though, here. I noticed and this is probably a really minor thing, that Robert Redford, I'm pretty confident, was left-handed, but he's wearing his watch on his right hand because I'm guessing Bob Woodward is right-handed. And when he starts typing, he starts with the right. So I just found that that level of detail was really intriguing. Like he's so in character that he's (laughs) even looking at his watch on his right hand when he, yeah, his natural instinct is. Left. Yes, he's he's even changed his hands uh, yeah. for Woodward, mm. and and what's funny is um, in a, that recent discovered interview that I found, I've put a clip on it on one of our very recent episodes. Um, uh, Alan Pakula talks about he, he walked like Redford walked like 
Bob Woodward, like Redford's wife at the time was watching the film and she goes, he walks out of that courtroom and he's not walking like my husband anymore. He's walking like Bob Woodward. And it's just this weird <laughs> thing of like, these guys were around each other, you know? And so to, to take it to that next level of detail, there's just that weird thing that happens. And, and I think that, you know, Mr. Bakula himself puts it so great. So it probably as perfectly as anyone has ever succinctly said it, which is that acting is a job. You're, you're there to say a line. You're there to move the story forward every scene. You know, like every scene has a purpose and they've got to follow the script to the letter. And, and, and so, you know, they have even more dues and more of a job if you're playing a real-life person to do their dues and make sure you're being authentic. But then it's like what actually happens is the ability for you to forget that they're doing a job that they're actually mm. coming up with these lines themselves. Yeah. They're actually saying it and they feel organic in saying it. And just little details like that of like his first instinct. And I know like you guys would know if you're, if you're naturally right-handed, the first keyboard hand that you hit is your left hand every single damn time. And, and so that touch, like you said, is just such and him pivoting so that it's like that. It's, it's really special. I love that you've pointed that out. And, and for folks, it's, you know, in 25 seconds into this minute is exactly where the screenshot is. If you guys, there, may, there has to be one boffin playing at home who's watching it along second by second, frame by frame with us, but it's about 25 seconds into this minute um, as Bernstein is frantically pulling things out of his pockets that's there. Um, but yeah, stack of, stack of books, lamp, a mess otherwise. There's also a great reveal, which is that he has managed to spend six hours with yeah. the bookkeeper. Yes. And, you know, given that we were witness to a couple of minutes of this super uncomfortable dialogue and her saying, I don't think you should be here, that sort of thing over and over, to get to six hours, that is some kind of witch magic, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you, there must have been something pretty special in that coffee, that's for sure. And you do get the sense that she did want to keep talking because you would boot someone out of your house, right? But, um, well, you'd hope so back in the 70s, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe she's so polite. Yeah. <laughs> the man wants coffee. I have to let him say. He wants to smoke in my living room. Oh, um, uh, yeah, so... He must have I done smoke, an I want to smoke work. now in anyone's living room when I watch this movie. I'm just like, can I have a cigarette in a house somewhere, for God's sake? <laughs> it just feels like uh, – but I, I, liked, I like to think that – that's what I think I love about this scene. You touch on two things, which is that, you know, that great – the great six minute Redford phone call scene earlier on in the film that they're, you know, he's, he's, um, you know, I think so aptly called the tip of the Dolberg on this show, the Ken Dolberg call so infamously six minutes agonizing through these different calls, flipping through different people, etc. Um, there's a great, there's a great something that happens in that, which is in real life that took days of coaxing that conversation. I think there's a great sort of, there's sort of a great like acknowledgement of, a, of, of the essential information passing in cinematic narrative form of like, mm. you saw six hours in eight minutes. Like mm. basically we saw that we saw the map, the, 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 the roadmap, the, the signposts of that six hour chat and the tension and everything like that feels it. So when he goes back and he goes, I was there for six hours. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like, I feel like I'm, you, you feel like you're in an, this conversation very for a short time, but also an eternity. It's like both things mm. at the same time. Mm. You're like, especially the longer the gaps, 
the longer she takes, the longer the scene has. It's like it flies by and it also is an eternity. So it's this really beautiful mix of like, this is what we do. We, we are we are doing a docudrama. We're being very authentic with what we're doing, but also like we're, we're, we're a movie. Like we want to entertain you. <laughs> we want to mm. we we capture you and make you emotionally engaged and then we're going to get you even, we're going to hit you even harder than a documentary sometimes because of the emotion that we're going to hit you on as well. But I love that trick. It's like, you know, time, that time passing and some great filmmakers, um, uh, some great filmmakers like to just mess with you with time and, and, you know, have things going along in that, what you call that weird movie pacing of like, it's going and days are passing <laughs> in the time that it's passing. It's a montage. Uh, yes, here, 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 exactly. Here's a, here's a little montage or then sometimes it's just like, they'll just let it fly. They'll let a scene eke out second by second in real time just to mess with you and it completely discombobulates you because you're like, what the hell? How long was it that? Like how long did that, was that three years? Was it a day? Was that two minutes? Is this now a year? Like what the hell's going on? But I love that in this movie a couple of times, multiple days crammed down into six minutes, six hours crammed down into eight. It's like, mm. but yeah, the, the, the stamina to be stuck in that kind of a wrestle for that, little detail but even though it's such critically important detail man it's so yeah. good so good and then and then you know there must be writing at what three in the morning you know and he's all yeah. jazzed up and trying to uh the bit that i was <laughs> there were two bits that i really um laughed at i guess after that and the, the first one was in pulling out all the notes from all parts of his body because um i have been that journalist <laughs> oh uh, yeah uh, yeah, um, yeah. when I was a senior entertainment reporter for the Mirror in London, um, uh, I'd always get invited to these late-night parties and inevitably your phone would die at some point and that would be the bit where you saw someone or someone would just casually mention something that was actually really juicy and you'd just be scrambling through your handbag <laughs> for like a bit of crumpled up chewing gum wrapper or anything that you could just jot down a few notes. Um, the notes function on your phone too would just, you'd look at it the next day and it'd be indecipherable. But in the moment you would know exactly, <laughs> exactly what was said. Um, you know, just have random things. Um, yeah, so, and I think that's the thing with all journalists too in shorthand. I don't know about you, Mayor. I never really mastered shorthand, but, um, um, but yeah, notes are so indecipherable, I found it fine. I've only had one. Mel Matheson, all the way back in the first 10 episodes of our show, really <laughs> terrific Sydney journo. Mel Matheson has done, you know, used to run MX, is now on GOAT online, um, works with the Nova team, uh, and, and she's a terrific journalist all over the place, but she's the only person I've met so far. She's like, yeah, I learned how to do shorthand. And I'm like, I kind of like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a journalist, uh, an entertainment one <laughs> at, at times I have been, but I'm like, man, I would love to do, sh I just would love to know shorthand because you could well, so fast. You did it, didn't you, Mary? Yeah. Like it's still part of a journalism cadetship if you go to the majors yeah. and yeah. And you don't get paid more until you get it. So wow. in my cadet year, yeah, you had to get your 120 words per minute to get that, awesome. get that pay rise from, you know, from poverty line to <laughs> just, just not quite poverty line to the to underside line. of the poverty line. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we all got it and then just never, you know, burnt the book, never used it again. But, um, 
But yeah, I had flashbacks. Surely there's to a my- surely there's a YouTube lesson we can learn. A YouTube masterclass. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm sure it's there. Um, it, it was always good. Like I did, you know, occasionally take a note or two in shorthand, and it's always a good conversation starter because you know if someone's watching, you take notes. It's a good way to get talking. But um, this particular scene actually made me remember a lot of my days at the Herald Sun. Um, I've never been a smoker, but I was like, oh, if I just took up smoking, I'd just have a reason to be standing outside the court yeah. and just adding to all those, you know, probably criminals who are also smoking and, you know, it's such an in and uh, Bernstein uses it to perfection in this one. But, you know, hopefully there's less people out there smoking these days and it's less important that reporters need to smoke. But, uh, yeah, clearly in the 70s, it was just your, your standard approach. To- that was, like, advice I was given definitely in cadet. It was, like, drink and smoke. <laughs> and, I, don't, I mean, yeah, I don't really do either of those things. And I don't drink coffee because I'm allergic to caffeine. So, uh, yeah, yes. the fact that I survived as long as I did in the business <laughs> is still astonishing to me. I'm at, you were not a 70s no, reporter. You, you, oh, my you, you God, must, yeah. That, that is a testament, Kate. To your skill <laughs> for a journalist, to I not always drink. had a lighter though. Yeah. I always had a lighter now, because you'd so, offer yeah. someone a light, and I heard, yeah, so, to, yeah. To, I've heard on your two things. Episode. Yeah, you, you'd listen to yeah. Bo Roberts and I talk, and I, Roberts. I got yeah. the advice. I wasn't smoking at the time. I have smoked in the past, and now I, I very much don't. Um, I'm, I try and be good as a dad, trying to be healthy, and all those sorts of things. And also, cigarettes are ungodly priced these days. Um, and so it's like <laughs> I, I don't do that, but. When I was growing up, it was always like a pickup thing for girls because girls smoke, take a lighter. And when the attractive girl mm-hmm. goes to light up a cigarette, make sure you're the guy who can light it because that would be it. So I got that advice. But what I was just going to say to you is that used to happen in corporate environments that I've been in in my life. And at that time I did smoke. Like you would walk outside and sometimes there'd be two or three like team leaders or a strategic conversation would just be happening out there. And I remember not smoking at that time and then smoking. And I remember smoking and thinking the same thing that you just thought both of you, Mary and Kate, which is like when I was smoking, I was like, can I imagine being inside there missing this and not getting a shot at throwing my two cents in? Um, and, and at the time, I was like, I'm not going to stop smoking because I'm going to stay out here. I'm going to stay in the mix. But it's so weird because that doesn't happen any Like, it just doesn't happen anymore um, in a contemporary environment. Obviously, most of us working from home at the moment and things like that. Um, but, yeah, it's just one of those crazy things that, you know, just a cigarette would be your way in. And it just – that feels really alien at the moment as well. It's almost like a metaphor for the gentleman's club, yeah. which uh, is reenacted multiple times in the newsroom in this, in this movie, actually. Yeah. yeah. So. 100%. 100%. This has been a real treat talking to you both. It's so fun to get you guys uh, out of the land of Bluey and uh, into into my world, into the dark uh, streets of Washington, D.C. in 1975, six when this was shot. Mary Bolling and Kate McMahon, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. You guys are great. Can you please just tell people where to find the show and uh, and tell them, if anything, how you'd like to see uh, Bluey do any kind of all the President's Men uh, shake-ups, <laughs> send-ups? Uh, we'd, love, we'd love to hear that. Well, you don't, we, don't, we laugh, like, but it's true. Like, um, Bluey 
always references different movies, hence we had you on our podcast to talk about some of the cinematic influences. So uh, follow the money could <laughs> yeah. be a good one. I guess. Follow the money, bingo. <laughs> could follow be the, the sequel money. to work. Yeah, that, yeah. that was uh, getting very corrupt in that particular <laughs> episode of Bluey. Um, I, I did stand it over a typewriter, like just really furiously <laughs> typing. From that would be quite fun. You could you could definitely have a bit of a newspaper um, theme, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I had thought as well that um, you know, there's the the reinvention of Watergate. Like this film is just so you know a touchstone for so many journalism and just general you know media shorthand. Um. Yeah, Anything I think that, they, you know, they, they could, could put the gates in the Gates in or something. But yeah, um, yeah, it's good to see that gates continue. Um, hopefully, there won't be a bluey gate. If you would like, I'm sure you'll hear about it on our podcast. <laughs> if there is, though. And you can find us where just uh, search got to be done um, on any of your preferred podcast platforms. Um, our website's got to. Uh, BlueyPod.com, and you can find us on all the socials too. We're BlueyPod on Insta, uh, Bluey Podcast on Twitter, which is where Blake found us. Um, and yeah, we we love hearing from other fans who are, uh, yeah, who just are building their lives around Bluey a bit like we are at the moment. <laughs> now, now for a sack of our American listeners, you'll be going on to Disney Plus. In the United States, yeah. check it out. So I know that there's a stack of American listeners out there. If you want to know what Bluey is, if you're confused why we're talking about Bluey and what we're saying, it is an Australian family show of a family of blue cattle dogs. Um, and uh, it's, you know, one of Australia's great family sitcoms, but in cartoon form. So you can check that out on Disney+. Plus For the rest of the folks that are in Oz and beyond, or Oz and around Oz, ABC iView, um, and these guys, Bluey Pod, because that's my inclination. I don't know about you. If you like something, you see if there's a podcast about it. And hopefully that's how you found all the president's (laughs) minutes. Guys, thank you so much for being a part of the show. It's been a real treat. And uh, and you've just blown me away with um, all of your journalistic passions and those stories. They're just awesome. And uh, just thanks again. Thanks Thanks so so much, much, Blake. Kate McMahon, Mary Bolling, aren't they just a treat? Uh, guys, you've heard where to find them. Follow them there. But if you uh, if, if if you don't want to dial back, just go to bluepod.com. That's the best place to start. You can listen to their great show. Um, and if you're a parent, it is the best show um, going around uh, uh, really right now in the world. Um, so get amongst it. Thank you so much to Kate and Mary again. Amazing guests. And I was so lucky to join them for their show, um, Bluey Pod. So I was blessed to do that. Guys, thank you so much for listening to All the President's Minutes. We have much more coming to you in the next coming weeks. We also have another episode coming this week, um, a little bit later on. Um, You'll see some more stuff popping up in the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to support us, just share. Share and share alike at ATPMPod at one Blake Minute on Twitter and on Instagram, oneheatminute.com. Mail at one heat minute if you want to reach out to us. We'll catch you on another episode of the show very, very soon. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. 
private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.